Maine's Political Pulse is made possible by Lee Jeep with the new Jeep Wrangler and Grand Cherokee 4xE plug-in hybrid models at Lee Jeep in Auburn and Westbrook. LeeAuto.com. Welcome to Maine's Political Pulse. I'm Erwin Gratz with State House Bureau Chief and Chief Political Correspondent Steve Missler and State House Reporter Kevin Miller. All of the key political actors were back at the Maine State House this past Wednesday to open the 131st Maine Legislature. Usually it's a day for ceremony, and this year, like many others, the State House was filled with family and friends who came to see members sworn in and get a glimpse of what life is like in the place that makes state laws. But for the first time in about three decades, there was a matter of real urgency for members to consider on this opening day. Governor Mills and others, worried about what inflation would mean to home heating prices, asked legislators to approve a plan consisting largely of another round of checks to Maine residents to help them pay for fuel to stay warm. But Kevin Miller, the proposal met a cold reception from one key group. Yeah, that's right, Erwin. Uh, they ran into Senate Republicans who demonstrated that even though they're in the the minority, they can still have a major impact on what happens or or what doesn't happen at the state house. Uh, there there was a lot of speculation headed into Wednesday about what would happen because you know some Republicans were already raising concerns about the process, specifically that the legislature was poised to pass what's uh, a nearly half billion dollar spending package without a public hearing or the typical committee vetting process. Um, this this $474 million bill, kind of the centerpiece of it would have been $450 relief checks to about 880,000 Maine taxpayers. That's pretty much the same people who received the $850 inflation relief checks earlier this year. It, it also contained about $50 million for low-income heating assistance. That's $50 million more than, than is already in the programs, and then about $21 million to make sure that people don't get evicted when uh, COVID-era housing relief programs at the federal level ends in a few weeks. The bill breezed through the House on a 125 to 16 vote after some key Republicans urged their colleagues to, to, to pass it in order to kind of help get uh, money into people's pockets right away. But once it got to the Senate, all eight of the Republicans who were still on the floor of the chamber at the time, they voted against it. And that was enough to keep it, keep it from getting the 24 votes or the two-thirds majority that they needed to, to pass an emergency measure that would take effect as soon as Governor Mills signed it. Those Republicans said they fully understand the urgent need and they want to offer their constituents help as quickly as possible. But they said spending this much money needs transparency and in this case, a big part of that demand seems to be a public hearing, but it's unclear whether that will happen or not. Well, Steve, what's going to happen next? Well, the big question, Erwin, is whether or not Democratic leaders agree to this public hearing that the Senate Republicans are requesting. The problem right now is that the committee to hold that hearing is not populated with lawmakers, and that's because the legislature usually comes in on swearing-in day in early December and then goes home until early January and the committees are created during that interim period. That's going to take some time. Also, my impression from Senate President Troy Jackson's comments this week is that he doesn't want to expedite that process without some guarantee from Senate Republicans that the vote outcome will be different from the one we saw this week. 
so we're it's a we're in a bit of a limbo right now but that's essentially where we are and i think it might be helpful to understand what a public hearing does and doesn't do in this situation erwin i mean public hearings on spending bills like this they don't unravel a proposal's complexity which is apparently an issue for some senate republicans they do, however, lure a slew of interest groups that want a piece of the pie, especially if their cause is not included in the proposal. So they're essentially public forums for people and interest groups to express whether they support or oppose the plan. And to the extent that there are public markups or decisions on spending bills, they're usually done after private negotiations and often between legislative leaders and the governor. And that's precisely what happened with this bill in its first iteration. Private negotiations were how it was crafted. They, those negotiations were between the governor's office, uh, Senate Democrats, uh, House Democrats, Senate Republicans, and House Republicans, and the leaders of those caucuses. So those private negotiations were how that bill was crafted, and private negotiations will all ultimately probably determine if this bill ever passes. I'm not saying that I agree with that process, but that's just how it works. I mean, this is how budgets are decided. Big spending bills like this one are decided this way. So the idea that a public hearing is going to become essentially an audit of the bill where they go line by line through it, that's just not how it works. And I'll just add one additional thing here that you know the prospect here is the idea of passing this on Wednesday was the checks could potentially go out as soon as January. Um, or you know early February to to folks who needed it who who could use this money um, by by holding a public hearing process and like Steve's talking about you're there were some estimates from uh, Troy Jackson and others that this could push that back into March you know by the time checks actually go out because you're talking about actually mailing checks to nine hundred almost nine hundred thousand people right and the other the other key date here is that. It wasn't just uh, heating oil that they, that this bill was attempting to mitigate. It was also electricity prices, and those go up January first. So, well, another piece of uh, routine business for the legislature on opening day was to elect the so-called constitutional officers: the attorney general, secretary of state, and state treasurer. Now, election by the legislature is an unusual routine for filling positions like this. Uh, Steve, is there any kind of a move afoot to change that? Probably. I mean, I think that's what the Republican leaders were alluding to when they declined to put forward their own nominations. So in Maine, um, constitutional officers, the secretary of state, attorney general, and the treasurer are all elected by the legislature. And, and Maine is one of just a handful of states that does it that way. A lot of states, or many of them, uh, essentially have voters uh, elect these positions. And this year, re Republicans, unlike in, in, in the past, they declined to put forward their own nominations for these positions, essentially because they wanted to make a statement about their support for doing the, uh, for having voters elect them instead. You know, I will say that, you know, while it's a break from tradition, that tradition is also a bit of an exercise in futility for the minority party because they just don't have the votes to advance their nominees. Efforts to change it here have previously fallen short, including when former gov Republican Governor Paula Page tried to do it when he was governor. He tried to do it a, a couple of times. And one of the reasons why they always fail is that the majority party has little incentive to change a system from which it currently benefits. And yet the majority party is also key to changing that system. That's because 
the election of these positions is enshrined in the main constitution and changing it requires a two-thirds vote of the legislature, which you cannot do without the support of the majority party. And in, if it does get past that, uh, voters get a chance to rat- finally ratify it via referendum. Right. Well, in the U.S. House, a vote this week to codify in federal law the right to interracial and same-sex marriage. Both institutions are currently legal, but based on U.S. Supreme Court rulings. Advocates worry that the justices willing to strip those protections from abortion may also be willing to do likewise in these areas. Kevin, the congressional action in this instance was bipartisan. Yeah, that's right. Uh, so the bill uh, received uh, support from all of Maine's congressional delegation, and it passed the, the Senate with a pretty strong uh, bipartisan vote. And in the House as well, I think where there were about 258 members who supported, which that included uh, uh, several dozen Republicans. You know, I think what's interesting here is that, as you mentioned, that there was a lot of concern uh, that same-sex marriage could be next after, uh, from this conservative court. And uh, Senator, Maine Senator Susan Collins was a key part of getting this through the Senate. Um, there was a bill that was already out there. She worked with uh, Democratic Senator Tammy Baldwin of Wisconsin, a Dem- uh, Democrat, to, to put together some language that mollified some of the concerns about um, how this, this bill would affect religious liberty rights. And because of that, they were able to pick up the Republican votes in the Senate to get past that 60-vote threshold. And that that was the biggest the biggest hurdle, arguably, because once it got back to the House, they just needed a simple majority vote. But in this case, they still picked up uh, uh, quite a few Republican votes. Now, the New York Times in its Friday edition carries an essay that suggests Russian President Vladimir Putin may be using the same strategy in Ukraine that he did to win a prisoner exchange, make it so politically painful that his opponent will be willing to compromise. It suggests there was a strategy behind arresting women's basketball star Brittany Griner and seeing that she received a maximum sentence for a minimal crime. The concern from Griner's supporters and Americans in general inflicted enough political pain for the Biden administration to feel forced to trade her freedom one for one for a Russian arms dealer, Victor Boot. In Ukraine, the essay says the bombing of power stations and restrictions on energy sales to Europe is also designed to create enough political pain in the West that it will force the Western countries to force Ukraine to talk and perhaps accept some or all of Moscow's terms. Steve Maine Independent Senator Angus King talked this week about Ukraine. What did he have to say about this? Well, Senator King has been a consistent supporter of supplying arms and aid to Ukraine to help that country repel the unprovoked invasion by Russia. But this week, King joined Iowa Republican Senator Joni Ernst on Fox News Sunday to essentially reinforce the case for continuing that support. Essentially, he warned that the West should not become divided over that support as the war drags on to its 10th month. And the reason I think, Erwin, that he and Ernst wanted to convey this bipartisan message is because the war is causing hardship in the U.S. and in Europe, high energy prices and shortages specifically. That's created some calls to either curtail or outright end American support for Ukraine's territorial defense. This is especially true in the Trump wing of the Republican Party, which has been railing against the U.S. aid effort pretty much all along. But now that view has a perch of influence 
in the U.S. House of Representatives, which the GOP will soon control, albeit narrowly. And I think that, as much as asking Europe to hold the line, is what King and Ernst are trying to get out ahead of. They understand that there will be fights in the U.S. House about aiding Ukraine, and they wanted to advance the idea that continued support is worth it, especially in terms of preventing Russia from expanding its global influence. Maine Public's Chief Political and State House Bureau Chief Steve Missler and State House Reporter Kevin Miller. And that's Maine's Political Pulse for this week. You can catch part of our conversation each Friday afternoon on All Things Considered, or read more about Maine politics on the newsletter that comes out Friday mornings. You can read it at mainepublic.org pulse, or sign up to have it emailed to you each week. Music is by Rob Holt. I'm Erwin Gratz. We'll be back soon with another edition of Maine's Political Pulse.